Okay, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, you could be turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, you can look at it on the screen. The different uh, verses from the Bible that we look at will, uh, will be shown up there. But we're going to spend some time looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. As we start drawing to a conclusion, really, in this series in 1 Timothy. So in just a moment, I'm going to read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 uh, from verse 3. So it says this, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that results in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So as we get into chapter 6, we're coming into land almost, really. This is the concluding uh, section of the letter. And as Paul starts to kind of uh, begin his approach, as it were, to the landing, um, he returns to some of the themes that he began the letter with. So in chapter 1, he gives a fairly uh, strong renouncing of the false teachers. Back in chapter 1, he was saying to Timothy there that he should uh, stay in Ephesus, chapter 1, verse 3, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And he goes on to describe almost the, the hallmarks of their way of ministry, the hallmarks of what they believe and the fruit that comes from what they've been teaching. He goes on to talk about how they've devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. A little bit further on, he'll say that some have wandered away from a good conscience and sincere faith um, to meaningless talk, he says. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. affirm. There's been a massive problem in this church in Ephesus, and as he comes back into chapter 6, he's kind of reminding them of that. Uh, In really stark, strong terms. The same kind of themes are there, really. They don't understand. Truth has been twisted. The fruit of it is controversy and quarreling, just argument. There's there's not a peace amongst the community because they've been kind of drinking this uh, unhelpful cocktail of poisonous teaching. Um, But one thing he does here is he mentions something new. Paul mentions an aspect of their ministry, as as you like, uh, for the first time. They think 
in chapter 5, they think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So if you like in chapter 5, the focus was how do we treat people? How, how do we relate to others? And, and we spent the whole of chapter 5, even the very beginning of chapter 6, considering that and considering different groups of people in the life of the church. Now, the focus is how do we treat money? How do we treat wealth? How do we treat uh, possessions? How do we relate uh, to, to money? And if we've, uh, if we've really received the gospel and the good news that's in Jesus, that will lead us one way. This passage describes it as godliness with contentment. That's the way that the gospel will lead us in relating to money. If we've drifted from the gospel, uh, it, it will be led in a very, very different direction. He's put it in very uh, strong terms. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus has done uh, elsewhere in, in Matthew and chapter 6, uh, verse 24, Jesus uh, says there, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We might like to think, actually, oh, surely life is more complicated. Life is more subtle than that. No, Jesus puts it in really stark terms. And here, Paul is putting it in really strong terms as well. He's put it in strong terms before, when he wrote to the same church in Ephesus. In Ephesus chapter 5, and uh, verse 3, I'll just read a few verses from there. Ephesians 5 verse 3. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscene foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's just interesting. He's, he's saying something on purpose there when he says a, a greedy person. says such a man is an idolater. Such, this person is worshipping a different God, in other words. If you think it's just a slip of the pen, then, uh, or a slip of the tongue, you can look at Colossians as well. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So the Bible speaks to us in very strong words, in very stark terms, almost asking us the question, who do you worship? Do you worship God? If you don't worship God, you're going to seek safety, security, love, affirmation somewhere else. So you'll worship something else. And uh, though money isn't evil in itself, it can so easily become a God. Uh, and so we're going to consider these two very different ways of life, these two very different masters. In a sense, these two very different gods. And we're going to consider what it is like to be greedy and what it is like to be godly. Uh, what it is like to, be, uh, to, to covet, that's the ninth commandment given to God's people, was uh, do not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's other things. 
In other words, don't want what you don't have but someone else does. If we're possessive, we've got lots and we're trying to keep what we have. We're just trying to keep hold of our belongings and we find it difficult to share. If we're coveting, we're frustrated by what we don't have and what other people have but we miss out on. And that's what we're really reaching for. That's what we really, uh, we're preoccupied um, with. So that's what we're going uh, we're gonna to consider. What it means to be greedy. The, uh, the passage here speaks of the, the love of money in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of e- evils. The focus here, because the whole chapter will, will touch on these issues to some extent. The issue here or the people being addressed, are those who want to be rich rather than necessarily those who actually are. In a few weeks' time, Bless Anne will take us through from verse 17 onwards, and we'll be looking there at what Paul commands to those who are rich. Here, Paul is addressing people who want to be rich, who, would, who love money and uh, are coveting rather than contented. Um, and it's so easy, isn't it, to... To kind of miss the point, we can think, because greed is actually invisible. We can't see greed. It's an attitude of the heart. So you might remember Jesus spoke to a rich young man who'd been very godly in all sorts of different ways. He'd kept the law. um, And Jesus says, you know, have you you been keeping the law? And Jesus doesn't mention the law about do not covet. And then he comes back around to it later on and says to him, one thing you lack Go and sell all your possessions, then come and follow me. It's interesting, is it? One thing you lack, you've got all this, all these riches and all this righteousness, but it's this, it's this heart issue. Now, sometimes, actually, the very richest can be the most generous, and uh, they don't love money. God has entrusted them with uh, massive resources because he knows they're going to pass it on, distribute it elsewhere. Sometimes we can just think, or in the eyes of the world, we just make the assumption that the person who has more is more greedy. And if they're getting a big fat bonus at the end of the year, they think, well, that just demonstrates they're the problem. And the society kind of gets churned up with anger towards people who have more. Now, maybe some people who have more um, are, are selfish, greedy, and oppressive. Maybe some people who have more are are generous, but you don't see what they give. Uh, we've got to dig a little bit deeper. We can't just make a, um, a knee-jerk reaction to things. The rich can be generous. The poor can be bitter. Uh, both can be greedy. Uh, God is wanting to lead us um, away from following money because money is a bad master. Verse 9 says all the ways in which it causes trouble. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many desires which are described both as foolish and harmful that plunge or sink men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the, roots, is the root of all kinds of, uh, of evil. So it leads to all of that. Loving money is a really... Uh, bad idea. It leads us into 
problems. It leads us into temptation. It can lead us into sin. It leads us into desires which themselves can become sinful and lead to further problems. It actually sinks us. If we think of money as a God, we might be thinking, it will lift me up. It will help me. If I could just get some more, I'll be all right. I'll be secure. Everything will be fine. And it isn't the case. Now, obviously, we then ask the question to ourselves, really? Is that really true? And I could, I could bring out one of those quotes from the, the wealthy person from their, death, their deathbed who said, oh, I, I had everything that money could buy, but I'm miserable. I think, well, really? I'm sure... I'm sure some more would, would make life so much more comfortable, maybe up, open up some other opportunities. Surely, to be more financially secure would be a wonderful thing. Everything else could work out if that was sorted. So, what we're going to do is look at a couple of examples from the Bible that show us that this really is true. There's loads that we could look at, but we'll look at a couple and then when we look at what it means to be godly, we'll look at a couple more examples of, of what godliness and contentment look like. And then we'll kind of think about how that connects with us. So I'm going to say, for example number one, to demonstrate that loving money really messes up life big time. If you turn to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 14. And there we see Judas. And we will look uh, at the situation that kind of prompted this decision. But here we have it in Matthew 26 and verse 14. says this, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Speaking about Jesus. So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas could be almost the very example of somebody who was for a while trying to serve two masters. For three years, he'd been in the twelve. He'd been one of Jesus' closest disciples. He'd been sent out on mission. He had preached. He had cast out demons. He'd probably healed the sick. He'd seen everything that Jesus had done. He'd been part of Jesus' kind of inner training program. And all the, so all the while, he has the appearance of someone who is loving God, serving God. But it's almost like they were on twin tracks. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You sat down on a train in a station on kind of one platform on one line. And there's another train right next to you from another platform and you have that strange thing where for a while you can't quite tell which train has started to move, uh, whether it's you or them, because that's all you can see out of the window. Uh, but you can kind of imagine that sort of scenario where both trains depart the station at the same time. And for a while they're right alongside each other, going along, heading in the same direction, it would appear. But further down the line, there's a junction. And at that junction, it's going to become clear. One train is going to Woodhouse. And the other train is going to Meadow Hall. And so you're, you can be sat on the train, and then you see, it at, oh, it's, the distance is growing now. All of a sudden, oh, it's gone. It's around the corner. It's out of sight. Judas would appear to have been beside Jesus all of that time. But he comes to a particular point 
and some stuff that's been hidden in his heart then comes to the service, surface and he makes that decision and he's, he's away. Totally different direction. Why? In some way, I guess Jesus had disappointed him. Following Jesus hadn't been quite what he had in mind and I think love of money played a part in that. So he says to the chief priests who want to kill Jesus, what are you willing what are you willing to give me if I can hand him over to you? I, I thought I would gain so much by following Jesus, but now I'm not so sure. And I'm looking for gain in a different way. Apparently, a 17th century uh, British journalist is quoted as of saying, He that serves God for money will serve the devil for better wages. In other words, he's serving God for financial gain. And there comes a point when he realizes, well, these, my options are limited here. I want better pay, so I'm going somewhere else. Actually, Luke's gospel says that Satan entered him, and then he went and embarked on this plan. That's, that's an example of someone, as it says here in Timothy, some people eager for money, we're told in verse 10, have wandered from the faith. There we have it. Somebody who wandered from uh, the faith for uh, 30 silver coins. Let me give you another example um, of how a love for money messes up your life. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 9, we meet Simon. So it says in, verse, uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is a divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. What happens next is the apostles come to Samaria and lay their hands on people, and they receive the Holy Spirit in a powerful and demonstrable way. And then we see Simon's response to that. In verse 18, Acts chapter 8, verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now at that point, we might just say, Simon, Simon, let me just take you aside. I think possibly something's got a little bit lost in translation. You may not have understood uh, the message of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. I'll just explain things to you a little bit more, uh, more carefully. You, you, you can't, sorry didn't make this clear earlier, you, you can't actually buy God. You, you can't bottle the Holy Spirit and, and put a nice label on the bottle and sell that for profit. It's just so great to have you amongst us though. So you know, keep coming, keep learning. Um, and oh, thank you. Oh, you know, it's interesting the products that you do have available. Let me, you know, it's not coming softly. When it comes to money, the Bible doesn't come uh, softly. Look at Peter's response. 
Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You've no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now Simon actually then asks that Peter does pray for him. Maybe Simon does exactly that. Maybe Simon repents. thinks, actually, my, my whole attitude towards money hasn't been right. And Peter can see. It's a heart issue, isn't it? Peter can see his heart. He can see his bitterness. For a long time, Simon has been someone really special that people look up to and really admire. Then he has to handle the fact that people have encountered someone greater. They've encountered Jesus, and they've received the power of the Holy Spirit, and He's even made that response himself. But now he realizes, hang on, I, I'm, not the, I'm not the focus anymore. Uh, I, I need to win back. I need to gain back uh, people's attention. I want people to admire me. And I was, I was actually kind of making money out of this lifestyle. So what can I do about it? I can make, you know, he, he, he wants to make an investment. If I, if I buy into this scheme, then perhaps I could go traveling as well. Do a, do a few shows. Send the hat round. Everyone's a winner. Maybe that was his mindset. And Peter says, your heart isn't right. It's full of of bitterness. It's full of this, of, of ugly resentment. You're captive to sin. Perhaps the Lord will forgive you. Oh, please pray for me. Kind of realizes, I've got to get my heart right. Discipleship isn't always gentle. It can be really abrupt. Now, for us, maybe it is much more subtle, but we we have to come to the same realization. Following God is not a means of reaching some greater goal. We're not worshiping God in order to gain something as a greater goal. Well, if I I worship God, if I follow God, if if I try to do the godly thing, maybe actually I will make more money. If I worship God, if I follow him, maybe I will get more power or more recognition Uh, maybe I'll get married maybe something else maybe this will happen maybe that will happen and we're forgetting though that the goal is worship the destination the the whole point is that we know him and that we that we worship him we're not worshiping him to to gain something else from him we're satisfied in him we're prizing we're treasuring who he is he is the treasure he is our prize knowing him is the most wonderful thing he is our security he is our safety he is the one that we can trust as the interpretation to that tongue brought earlier on so wonderfully wonderfully put it we're, that essence of worship is saying to almighty god i love you i worship you All my hope is in you. Only you can satisfy my deepest longings. May every step I take in life serve to glorify and lift up your name, Almighty God. Or subtly, we can be saying exactly the same words addressed to a different God. I love you. I worship you. I bow the knee to you. All my hope is in you. Only you can satisfy my deepest longings. May every step I take in life serve to glorify and lift up your wonderful name, Almighty Dollar, or Almighty Pound. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? But 
sometimes we can go through life thinking, well, we're going to move on to, to look at godliness. I think where we're pursuing God, we're saying, whatever happens in life, Lord, I, I must get closer to you. God, I want more of you. And I want to turn over more and more of my life to you. That nothing will be hidden from your influence. The amount of money I have in the bank might go up and down. But I must have more of you, God. If it's the other way around, we're saying, whatever, whatever happens in life, I must get more money. Whatever other things are going on, I must get closer to financial security. My godliness in life will probably go up and down, but I must have more of you. Money. And if that's the attitude, we can get stirred up with all sorts of other, uh, all sorts of other things. In the passage that we read, we're, we're looking at the, those hallmarks of, of the ungodly false teachers and controversies, quarrels about words, envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction. I think all of those things will happen if we resent others for having more than we have. It's easy to suspect evil motives for those who've just been on a nicer holiday. It's, it's easy to be, for there to be envy and strife or malicious talk. Have you heard about what they've done? Did you see that on Facebook as well? And we can just get into a, a gossipy way of just wanting to bring other people down if they've got more than we have. Rather than... Knowing godliness with contentment. That's where Paul uh, wants to lead us. So consider what it's like to be greedy. What is it like to be godly? Godliness with contentment, we're told, is great gain. You think, you know, some might think that following God is a means to financial gain. Actually, there's great gain. It's of a completely different sort, but there's great gain by godliness with contentment. Uh, Contentment, we're told here, that remember, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Everything that we have is temporary. Ultimately, everything we have is given to us uh, by God uh, and we're going to leave it all behind. Um, so again, there's a quote in a, at the funeral of a, a very wealthy lady Someone was a little bit curious uh, and so went up to the minister and said, how much did she leave behind? And the, the wise minister said, all of it. <laughs> She's not taken any of it with her. She left it all. Um, and when we get a, an eternal perspective, we realize content, contentment doesn't rest on how much we have. We're, we're told here the basis for contentment is having food and clothing or food and covering, which could then include like having a roof over your head and having clothes to wear and, and having food to eat. With that, we can be very content and we can follow God and, and trust him. The essentials are covered. Now again, we might be thinking to ourselves, the obvious question Really? 
Is that really true? Can you really be content with food and clothes? Just, you know, we're just talking the essentials. Is it possible, honestly, to be content with just the essentials? What great gain is there from just having enough to get by? What's the great gain that God had in mind? Now, again, we're going to look at two examples from the Bible that show that godliness with contentment is great gain. So look before at the negative examples of Judas and Simon. And we're going to look at some examples now. And the first is very closely attached or associated with Judas because we're going back to Matthew 26. Because here we see the example of godly contentment that provoked Judas so much in all likelihood that he went and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What was it that happened? Who do we meet? Well, we meet, I think, Mary, just known here, a a woman, but this is an account in other uh, Gospels as well. Matthew 26, verse uh, verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Sounds very worthy, doesn't it? Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Mary had this jar of extremely expensive perfume uh, that could be estimated as about being a year's wages. So consider, I don't know, what the average income in the UK might be. Today, is that like 30,000? You've got, you got a jar of perfume. Perfume is expensive, isn't it? But that is quite a lot. A jar of perfume, let's say it's about 30,000 pounds. Jesus is at the table, at a meal, very soon he's going to be in Jerusalem dying on the cross. He's heading towards that destiny and he's at this meal and the lady comes in, she breaks open this jar, however many tens of thousands of pounds it might be worth a day, and she poured it all over Jesus. What would you do? What would you do with 30,000 pounds tomorrow? What could that go towards? What causes, you know, you think, who else could I help? What other causes may this go towards? She sees the body of Jesus. And she thinks, I'm, I'm, I'm giving it to him. I'm going to pour it on him. Jesus says elsewhere how that was, what she's done is a beautiful thing because it's prepared, for, prepared my body for burial. It's beautiful thing. I think she, was, she lost, she gave all of that up. Is that not completely crackers? Is that not outrageous? 
You think, oh, hang on a minute. No, it's already gone. <laughs> what was I thinking? Well, what did Jesus say? I tell you the truth. This is what she gained. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We kind of think we want a legacy, don't we? We want our lives to make a difference. Here's a life that made a difference. A life poured out in worship to Jesus. And Jesus says, wherever this gospel goes around the world, what she's done will get a special mention, a special note. So yes, in a sense, maybe she had the sense of what she, she, gave, up, she gave up a lot. But she prepared the body of Jesus for a remarkable, remarkable moment. You know, the, the New Testament encouragements that are there for us when it comes to giving, they're never just, just a ticking off. Well, you shouldn't want those things. Just do without. It's always in, in terms of there being a promise, of being an incentive. But Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, when you give, you're storing up treasures in heaven. We had, uh, we had some Pakistani neighbors uh, where we once lived in Sheffield. And they were lovely people, really, really hospitable, very generous. Um, but they did live quite simply. And uh, I think the reason, part of the reason for that is they still had a property back in Pakistan. And so what they were making, what they were earning by their hard work... Some of it would go on their simple living in the UK, celebrating Eid and all the rest of it, and, and, and a fair amount of it would be sent back home to their real, if you like, their sense of their spiritual home, and they were investing in their family property there. You wouldn't have known it on our street, but they were, they were kind of storing it up somewhere else. And that's what, as believers, we're called to do. Live quite simply here. Yeah, you can enjoy a nice holiday or whatever, but live quite simply here. Store up these treasures in your spiritual home. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your spiritual home. It's in glory. It's, it's there. And think, so, so we give, not with some, some sort of sense of reluctance, but... Kind of, I get to, I want to honor the body of Jesus, and I want to store up treasures in heaven. I want these resources to build that kingdom, rather than just my own, my own one. Investing in another kingdom. Let me give you a second example before we wrap up, and that is in Philippians. We're going to look at actually Paul's own example. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, he says about something very interesting. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's how a man speaks who has encountered the greatest treasure. It's the surpassing worth of knowing him. I consider everything else a loss. But he does actually say, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
Probably following Jesus meant losing in this life. The decision for Paul to follow Jesus, he was in this elevated position as a Pharisee. Maybe that came with certain prestige. Maybe that came with certain pay and benefits somehow. And he walked away from all of it because he found Jesus. That's his thinking. And then he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And it could be described as a a lengthy thank you letter because they sent a gift to him. They've sent some money to him. It's a bit tricky sometimes to say thank you. I don't know if you've ever received like an anonymous gift through the blue buckets. Uh, And sometimes the message goes out later, thank you for whoever it was who gave me uh, a certain amount of money. It it was really helpful. Uh, Often the phrase is, it was timely. And I just want to say say thank you. Paul has to work out how, how uh, how to say thank you for their generous gift. So in chapter 4 he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed you have been concerned but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Can we say the same? Can we say, God can enable me to live. God can give me the strength to live for him when I have a lot and when I don't have very much. When I have plenty and when I have lack. Paul can say, I've learnt the secret of contentment. I think Paul would say, whatever happens, I'm pursuing God. I must have more of him. I want to be closer to him and I want to honour him and I want to get to know him better. My finances will go up and down. My provision will do all sorts of funny curves. I must have more of God. But he'd learnt to handle this. He'd learned to handle his bank balance doing that, his disposable income. Sometimes we can live with an expectation, yeah, we're going to get closer to God, but all the way through life, our finances are going to get better at the same time. And that'll be a, we don't really think that we believe in a prosperity gospel, but subtly we might think, all the way through life, I'll just be getting a little bit richer, a little bit better off, a little bit more secure, a little bit more independent, a little bit more able, probably do nicer holidays, probably have a bigger car. Everything... I know it's not necessarily wrong to, to do any of those things or have any of those things, but our expectation might need adjusting. Is our goal in life to always get a bit more? It can feel awkward if your peers have kind of gone beyond you a little bit. They're earning more. You want to try and catch up. Don't want to let on that actually you can't afford the same things. Let's all meet up for the weekend. Let's go to Prague. I can't. Well, okay. <laughs> And we're just trying to keep up. Because the expectation is our finances should basically do that. We know that in the early years you have to tighten your belt and you're making some big sacrifices and you're starting a mortgage or, or whatever. But over time, surely things should always get that bit better. I think Paul says, sometimes I've got plenty, sometimes I've got lack. I can remember an example. Sometimes God's blessing can then become a test. 
I was aware of an example once, a long time ago, where uh, a family that we knew said, God has really blessed us. There's no way we would ever have expected to have a car like this. There is just no way we could have afforded it. Um, but this one became available like thousands and thousands of pounds beneath its market value. Just an incredible opportunity. We were so blessed, and it was effectively given to us, but we, you know, we paid a bit. So we had this amazing car. Four by four, quality. Now what happens to every single car over time? It, it will break. It, it, maybe it lasted for so many years. And then it broke. Uh, and, it, and it couldn't be maintained. At that point, they thought, the test came. We had that really, we got used to that really, really nice car. Now, if we want to get the same car, it's really, really going to cost us because we're not going to find that deal again. There's no way it's going to be like that. But for thousands and thousands and thousands of extra pounds, we'll just try and, and afford to replace like for like because God's blessing almost became our expectation, our benchmark. You know, Job can say, from his profound experience, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And sometimes our thoughts can be, the Lord has given. Surely, you better give again. This is what we're used to, Lord. This is what we'd like. Um, and perhaps our expectations need to change. I remember my, my grandma, Grandma Mayton. Uh, I think she grew up in quite a wealthy, relatively comfortable, well-off uh, family. I'm not sure exactly what her dad did, but my other great-granddad worked for him, so he was some kind of foreman. She was comfortably well-off uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. She said, actually, 1935, that's the year she said the party stopped. 1935 was the year the party stopped. In other words, I guess by then the, the Great Depression had hit big time and so their, their means were much reduced. So she had to adapt and I guess what she wouldn't have known then at that young tender age is that there was another world war coming and rationing and other things and, and so on. Um, but right then as a young child, I thought, ah, we can't afford to do what we used to be able to do. And that impacted her. What? We might have to adapt. Or what adaptate? What? I'm not trying to put the skids under anyone, but leaving the EU, deal or no deal, we don't quite know what's going to happen. The economic welfare or strength of our whole nation and economy, is it strong? What will happen? We don't know. Might there be a point where we might say, oh no, the party's stopped. We just don't have that much anymore. Or do we say, the party's stopped, but I wonder if by this, God is going to bring about massive blessing on this nation. Maybe the nation will turn back to God at a point where its security is stripped further away and people turn around and see a church who, still, who seem to be contented they're not in strife, they're not envying one another, they're content, they're godly, they're loving, and they've got less as well than they used to have. But God does something remarkable 
in our nation. Will we be so devastated? This is not prophetic. This is speculative. Would we be so devastated that we join in all the same angry protests and, uh, and so on, and, then, and the world noticed no difference about the church? Well, they've lost their sweets as well. Yeah, will we still know that God loves us when we have less money? Would, would it be difficult to persuade us? God does love you, you know. Even if you've got a bit less, God does love you. Or does it so challenge our hearts? God, why have you taken it all away? Trust me, trust me, follow me, follow me, worship you. Well, worship me, the Lord says. <laughs> got myself modelled up there. You know, well, that, that essence of worship is still flowing. No, yes, Lord, my hope has always been in you, and it still is. I'm still trusting you. I'm still following you. Kids, if your mum and dad can't afford the same kind of quality of Christmas present in the future, will you know that they still love you? Will you still know that, that, that God still loves you? Last year, I got a mountain bike. This year, I'm getting a stationary set. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We're not taking the mountain bike or the stationary set away with us. Or the 4x4. Four four. We didn't have that before. We won't have it in the future. Everything is temporary. And we worship God. That's where we find our satisfaction. That's where we find our security. That's where we find our joy. Come what may. We do sometimes say that, don't we? Whatever your week's been like. Maybe we'll be saying that in the future and someone's lost their job. We're say, saying that in the future and the investments have just gone through the floor. Lord, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Are you ready to stand and bless the name of the Lord with me?